Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. Rosenberg, H Bomb, Sugar Ray, Pem and Jump, Brando, Brando, Ledge, Brando. Hello again, and welcome to episode 19 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is now, all dictated by Billy Joel's imagination and ability to make major global events rhyme. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, we're going where no other podcast goes because no other podcast has Billy. No, no other podcast has Billy and his random collection of pop culture icons. And today... The pop culture icon is Marlon Brando. Katie, what a handsome man. That's the first thing I'm going to say. Having watched some Brando films back in the last couple of weeks, he's a dreamboat. He is animal magnetism on a stick, and he's the classic bad boy. I have to say that as a youngin, I really didn't have any kind of perception about Marlon Brando other than what I'd read in Mad Magazine. So all my information about the world came from Mad Magazine and their movie parodies. So they had these spoofs. And one of them for The Godfather was The Odd Father. And then there was another one for his film The Wild One, which was The Wild One Half. And so <laughs> it, it wasn't until we were prepping for this that I actually saw him on the small screen. And my goodness, uh, I needed to change my underpants. (laughs) The second favourite thing I've learned about Marlon Brando so far, when he's in Sayonara, which is maybe not his best known film, Mm. his character is called Ace Groover. And I've decided that if the time ever comes when I wish to change my name, I'm going to change it to Ace Groover. Are you also going to embark on a porn career? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if the opportunity presents itself. <laughs> <laughs> you won't say no. Okay, well, we're putting together our uh, very limited understanding of Marlon Brando. And in order to make one giant good brain, we're bringing in an expert. It is the broadcaster, film critic, and an utterable thrill seeker, Jonathan Ross. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Katie. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Very, very well, Jonathan. Now... What I came to realize when I was watching a bunch of Brando flicks over the last few weeks was there would have been no Elvis without Brando. Uh, William Shatner was practically just mimicking Brando when he was doing Captain Kirk in Star Trek. There wouldn't have been no James Dean or Paul Newman, Robert De Niro, Johnny Depp. Um, 
how come he's so gosh darn influential? Well, for a start, I don't think I'd actually agree with any of those statements, <laughs> which isn't a great way to begin. But sure, he, he was massively influential. Before we do that, though, I've got to say, I loved hearing what you said about Mad Magazine because I got all my knowledge of the world and of pop culture from Band Magazine as well. So I also grew up, before I got to see Brando, and of course I am a huge Brando fan, but before I got to see Brando, I grew up thinking he was a bit of a joke. You know, he was this kind of like mumbling, dirty, slovenly kind of character, which was their early parody of Streetcar Named Desire, you know, that, that his incredible performance in that. And then the kind of Godfather, where it was all jokes about him not being able to speak clearly as well and having a piece of orange peel stuck under his front lip. So it was just kind of parody stuff. And that's kind of a shame you know I think he's someone who always pushed back against that so maybe we'll get to that later but certainly his influence yeah. was enormous I mean there, there was a lot of I think actors of that period were all looking for a way of trying to shake up the world it's very much more of a kind of a post-war thing I think than anything else it was this kind of post, post-war post America where they're thinking okay why are we still shackled to these um, these limitations why are we still presenting an unreal version of ourselves where is the truth and and I think there was a kind of post-war boom of, I think, just more truthful representation in art. And Brando was obviously supremely gifted and amazingly charismatic, but also he was the right man in the right time at the right place. Why does he end up an actor, Jonathan? Because it's an unusual profession. Not many people can do it. Not many people end up in that world. There always seems to be a backstory with successful actors. Like Katie, we did a Marilyn Monroe episode a couple of weeks ago, and we heard all about her picaresque and quite tragic backstories. Jonathan, it sounds with Brando like he almost ends up an actor because of his childhood, his alcoholic mother, who he's still obsessed with, a father he hates. You know, I, I push back at that kind of simplification of people's lives and motives, to be honest with you. I don't think you can ever know why someone did something because I, I know people who have had terrible backgrounds and who've gone on to do great things and I know people who've had terrible upbringings and who have gone on to have awful lives you know I don't think there is a direct line necessarily I mean certainly you can look at a lot of the artists of that time like Dean and like Clift and Clift of course was a closeted homosexual man of course he had to be due to the, the, the way society dealt with people back then Dean presumably was also gay or bisexual but also had a rather rough upbringing his mother died when he was very young and they seem to same, find the same path through. So there is perhaps a similarity that these guys felt like they did not fit in with society and they had been unfairly treated. But I don't know whether one should simplify it to that extent. I just think he... You know, because there are lots of people who became actors who probably had terrible times back then you know bear in mind his father would have been uh, would have grown up and been a young man during the uh, during the depression I guess I mean I'd imagine he was born in the previous century because Brando was born when Brando was born about was it 19 1924 24 okay 20... so so he, he was born at the tail end of the Great Depression now, I don't think any of us can imagine what that must have been like to have lived in America during that period. I mean, it must have been just, yeah. you know, the most hideous thing. So yeah. it wasn't like many people had an easy ride of it. So, of course, he was, he was you know, born in a period of great turmoil and great social change and great deprivation. There is a funny story from one of his childhood friends that uh, he imitated the the cows on the family farm to distract his mom from drinking. So he was always a really good mimic. I mean, I know it's easy to mock some of his questionable choices and some of his roles where he's doing everything from yellow face to brown face. Uh, you know, he's playing a, a Chinese man. He's playing an Asian man. He's playing a Mexican man. But uh, in fact, whether he's playing Mark Antony and Julius Caesar or uh, a mumble mouth thug in Wild One, it seems that 
he does have a very empathic ear. He knows his power. He loves to delight with his talent. I mean, he's clearly just supremely gifted. He's a supremely gifted performer. You know, maybe performer is the wrong word because it somewhat diminishes what he does because he really does more than any other actor. I think he inhabits those roles and becomes them. I don't know whether he managed to inhabit and become a cow to distract his his uh, <laughs> thirsty mother. But I mean, and by the way, I don't, I'm not saying that, that that didn't have an effect. And of course, he must have done his childhood. I'm just saying I think it's too easy for us to simplify uh, you know, a, a take on a complex man like him and say, well, he, he was there because of this. You know, I think he, there's that interview which you you steered me towards, Katie. In fact, the interview that he, he gives with his father the night after he wins an Oscar. And um, it is tense and it is strange and you can sense the the kind of the lack of rapprochement between the two of them really. But at the same time, you can see he's fond of his father. You know, it's a, it must have been an incredibly complex relationship. Yeah, that uh, interview that you're referring to is the Edward R. Murrow um, I found it excruciating to watch. You're saying tense, but I I just was getting uh, like sweaty palms looking at it. It's from 1955, and it's filmed in Brando's apartment. And the interviewer asks the father if he was proud of his son. And his father says, well, as an actor, not too proud, but as a man, quite proud. And I just shriveled yeah. when I saw that because you can see just a fleeting reaction going across Brando's face where it's like, not this shit again. Like, I grew up with this. But he styles it out, and then he does a little role reversal where the the interviewer asks Brando, oh, you know, do you ever repost to that? And he says, oh, you know what? I can lick my dad. I can lick him. Yeah. So it's fine. And then he does a kind of forced, like, you know, tap on his dad's foot. He kind of puts his hand on his dad's foot like a, it's all right, buddy. But it's almost like it was either that or slug him. I don't know whether, I don't think he was genuinely close to hitting his father. But I think at the same time, I think by then he probably made peace. You know, you get to a stage, I think we all get to a stage in life where you you either decide you're going to be determined by relationships that are imposed on you, like your family, or you're going to become your own person. And I think by then, Brando had broken away and become his own person. You know, in the way that people had to do in America in the 1950s, because they were basically rejecting the values and the style of living that the previous generation had had forced on them. You know, so there was a great sense of liberation. Bear in mind, in that same interview segment, and it's a remarkable piece of footage, which as you, you, you linked me to it, and it's on YouTube, but he then goes downstairs and plays some jazz bongo. And this was, yeah. <laughs> this was something that Dean, Dean took up the jazz bongo, I think because he so wanted to be Brando early in his acting career. And there are lots of shots of, uh, of, of Dean in, in little studios playing bongo drums as well. So it was obviously a thing. But I think it was the, the embracing of what was seen as a kind of that new wave, almost beatnik lifestyle. There's just such a huge chasm between his father's generation and him that I, I suspect you'd find that in almost every relationship from that period, especially those in which the kids went on to do professions which were seen as being kind of not unworthy, but frivolous, you know, yeah. indulgent. I guess I would just say, Tom and Jonathan, that watching that interaction between Marlon Brando and his dad, I... I related to that because just as you say, Jonathan, that idea that being a performer is considered frivolous or at least by a certain generation. And um, so I I had a little bit of that in my own family. What did they want you to do, Katie? Well, it's not that they had uh, – and I'm thinking really more of my dad who was like a pretty hardcore uh, Air Force colonel, 
from the Cold War era. So I think, uh, sadly, in that paternalistic way, he didn't really have any particular expectations that I would do anything that impressive because I am just, after all, a lady. <laughs> but they, neither my parents really relished uh, me being a performer, a dancer, a singer, a TV presenter. They just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. That's the thing. I think I would suspect Brando's parents just didn't get it. And they would have thought, here's someone who should, we worked hard. I mean, I, I suspect sometimes there's a degree of jealousy in that, that generation because they worked hard yes. and had zero fun. They couldn't screw around. They couldn't play bongos in their own cellar. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. it was a totally different world. Then suddenly this, the, the change that happened during the 50s is was, you know, enormous. I mean, it really is. It's like that kind of shift in just about every value. And then the 60s with the civil rights movement, which Brando, of course, was vocal in supporting, of course, you know, a massive change to this kind of like established somewhat, you know, we, we would regard it as an evil status quo, but the change that was being affected or being attempted anyway, enormous. And then the 70s again, you know, you've got this period of like, you know, long hair and layabouts and open marijuana use and, and sexual liberation to a greater extent than in the 60s even. And Brando lived through all of that. And in a way, Brando participated in all of that right up to the end. I mean, I think if you look at his life, you know, the period where he seems more lost and we don't we know less about him is the kind of like 90s. One of the aspects of Marlon Brando that is so modern and so contemporary, in addition to his naturalistic acting style, is the fact that he did have a social conscience. And you brought that up earlier, Jonathan. Um, the idea that it was very natural to him to look at uh, the inequities in society and to speak up about them from his position of privilege. I mean, this was, you know, this is the kind of thing that goes on today and it's it's still somewhat decried. But even when he was called up for the Korean War, he, he ended up uh, getting out of it because he had a knee injury. So uh, when Brando got the call up for the draft for the Korean War, he answered a questionnaire by saying his race was human and his color was seasonal oyster white to beige. <laughs> um, so he's so witty, Jonathan, yeah. you know, just as you say, so intelligent. And he went on to uh, ally himself with Martin Luther King to go on the freedom marches. Uh, when he went on talk shows, there was an amazing clip where he goes on uh, the Johnny Carson show. I think it's around 1968. And he spends his whole 16-minute segment uh, saying that all the big stars of Hollywood need to donate money to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, charity. And King had just been assassinated. And he's saying, look, it's for white people to make a difference yeah. because they've been keeping African-Americans down. Incredible, an incredible example, you know, and, and he led by example. I mean, I think he walked away from a film. He was about to start another movie with Elia Kazan when uh, Dr. King was assassinated. And I think he felt, I can't do something as trivial as this, even though it would have been working with a director he respected and admired. And it was, uh, it, what's fascinating, I think, is, and you see a little bit of it now, but not so much, is that he was, he was kind of mocked. It was society didn't know how to deal with it. And I think they did feel threatened by him. He was, he was kind of made a joke because of this. And, and you're right, it's complicated, of course, because he had in the past played in roles of people, you know, from different races and, and had had his eyes altered to try and look like he was Asian in one film. Things which now we would consider unacceptable. But of course, I think that was him, you know, exploring his craft and really trying to tell stories that he wanted to tell and realising that 
his box office mojo as a big star could help get things made that wouldn't otherwise made. So I would absolutely forgive him those. But I think he, him doing that when he refused the Oscar and, and tried to highlight the kind of way in which um, Native Americans were dealt with on screen was such an important thing he was doing. And he was so, once again, far ahead of his time in recognising that and wanting to be the change that he wanted to see others affect. Um, and yet he was mocked for it. He was different. So he was very much, I think, someone who was you know, as I said, super intelligent. I have nothing but enormous respect for him as a man from, from those actions that you see that, that kind of made him an outcast, kind of made him a pariah within the system that had given him the lifestyle he enjoyed, but at the same time he wanted to work within, and yet he found limiting and frustrating. And, and so he was he was an outlier. You know, he really was a kind of, crusader is the wrong word, but he was very much ahead of his time. And just, you know, what, a, what an incredibly inspiring human being to, to do that, to go on a talk show a few days after Dr. King had been assassinated and saying, I can't, I've stopped, I pulled myself away from this job I was about to do because I can't think that this is the right time to be doing this. And I want to reach out to everyone and say, we need to be the change. We need to make a difference. And a huge kind of risk to take. I mean, he was someone who was actively throwing away his career, actively walking away from work, upsetting, annoying the studios to do what he saw as being the right thing. Incredible. Katie, I'm going to make the timeout signal with my hands there and reach for a cold compress because this has been big stuff. Let's have a few adverts. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And action. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. Is he ever happy, Jonathan, with his with his performances? So mm. most people think On the Waterfront is one of the great movie roles and we're all familiar with the climactic speech. Is it true that... Despite, I could have been a contender. Yeah. Is it true that he... So he wins an Oscar for that. Is it true he didn't actually like his performance in that film? You know what? Once again, I know he has gone on record to say that he was never happy with some performances. and But I, I don't know whether that's true. You know, you, you are someone a question, a weighted question like that at any given time, do they know themselves? You know what I mean? I don't. I suspect he always wanted to improve as an actor. He must have been happy with some of his performances. He must have known. I mean, he talks quite fondly of his performance on stage and on screen in Streetcar Named Desire, you know, and I think he must have known the impact he was having, but I suspect he was someone who probably didn't want to big himself up too much. You know, it's difficult when people are saying to you, oh, you know, you have been called the greatest actor of your generation. Where does he go with that? What does he say back? Yes, I am. You know, you, you wouldn't say that. Although Ed Norton, an actor who is obviously a skilled actor, and I like some of his work, but I suspect no one enjoys his work as much as he does. Uh, he, he was asked about appearing in the film The Score, directed by Frank Oz, in which he acted on screen. There was Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro in that. An amazing cast. And someone asked about it, and he said, yes, you know, and they said, uh, do you have high hopes for the film or something like that? And I spoke to him about this after the event. And he said, um, well, I, I would hope it would do well because it has the three greatest actors of their generation in it. <laughs> and you think, what a, what a massive prick to say that. You know, you're, but on the one hand, if he feels that way, then I suppose you respect that honesty. I, I suspect Brando wouldn't have done that. He must have known how much impact his work had. And he must have, you can't help but think he must have realised 
he was, you know, his work was fine. I mean, the people talk about, when they talk about On the Waterfront, obviously it's an important, it's a com- kind of complicated movie because of the message in it and Kazan's role in directing it after he'd given evidence in the McCarthy trials. Um, the, but there's the moment in that, the speech moment, of course, is is magnificent. The whole film is magnificent. But there's the moment that people talk about where um, Eve Marie Saint drops her, drops her glove during one of the takes and Brando picked it up and carried on acting and then puts it on his own larger hand. And of course, it's, a, a, a magnificent moment of intimacy and intention yes. and closeness and a slight kind of like physical intrusion on her space, which is welcome and unwelcome. And it bodes, you know, foreshadows what the future of their relationship might be. Incredible moment, which people adore. I mean, and and just so sensual because he's forcing his big man hand into her little uh, leather glove. A tiny I mean, little glove. That, that, that little metaphor there yeah, is, yeah, uh, is packs a punch. Not wasted on any of us. Uh, but uh, but once again, uh, an amazing moment because it was improvised. You know, he dropped it. And it, it's an amazing performance. And I think he must have known his performance in that, his performance in Streetcar, his performance in The Wild One as well, which is a, you know, it's great fun, not the most sophisticated movie, but great fun and, and did create a whole look. I mean, you know, the whole kind of like, I, I suspect the whole Leatherman look. It's unbelievably camp oh, watching that back now. massively gay in the best possible way. Can we just back up and talk a little bit about what, what he, who he is in The Wild One and what's happening? Well, The Wild One, he plays a kind of drifting rebel who is rebelling against whatever you've got. There's a famous quote in the movie. She says, I think one of the women says to him, what are you rebelling against? He says, what have you got? Which is just such a great, but kind of stupid, but great movie line. Um, and he looks amazing in it, of course. He wears the kind of classic motorcycle, what became the classic motorcycle jacket, the leather cap, uh, the tight blue jeans, the black motorcycle boots, the big buckled belt, all of the stuff which Tom of Finland, um, you know, introduced as the most kind of, you know, the kind of gay uniform of muscle men yeah. in, the, in the late 60s and early 70s. But the, I think the genius of Brando as a performer uh, uh, was creating that feeling of uh, truth in, in the dialogue as he performed it. I mean, once again, even in, his, even in his, his bad performances, or not bad performances, even in movies which strike one as being... Very, very peculiar, like the island of Dr. Moreau. Um, he's still enjoyable to watch. He's still yes. he's still riveting when on screen. That presence, that ma- masculine beauty, and that charisma still shines through, even when he's wearing a a muumu, you know, or a, <laughs> or a kaftan, whatever it was. I don't know what that item was, but he's still amazing to look at. He is actually, uh, it, it's very jarring to see him in the movie musical Guys and Dolls, oh. but but still it's it's worth watching, isn't okay, it? Okay, now you have to remind me, who's the young woman in that film? Gene Simmons. So Guys and Dolls, here's the amazing thing. I interviewed Gene Simmons, okay? Uh, I interviewed her, I don't know when this would have been, this would have been 15 or maybe 20 years ago. And of course I wanted to ask her about Brando, and of course I wanted to ask her about Guys and Dolls, which is one of my favorite all-time musicals. And I, I said to her, I, I don't know whether I should ask you this evening because I don't want to be disillusioned, but it's so much fun to watch. It's so joyous to watch. And of course, Brando had a reputation, beginning to have a reputation at that time of being somewhat difficult um, with directors and with the studios. And I said, but was it fun? Did you guys actually enjoy working together on it? Was it enjoyable? She said, I have never had a better experience making a film. And she said, and everyone, we all adored it. And the moment we do a big number and we'd finish singing and miming and dancing and doing that, she said, Almost all of us would say, can we do it again? 
<laughs> which I just loved to hear. I loved to hear that they had as much fun doing it as we have watching it because he is so good in that. And of course, Sinatra, yeah. I believe Sinatra wanted the role he got, of course, but Sinatra's great in it as well. Gene Simmons is amazing in it. It's just, it's just such a joyful, joyful cinematic experience and knowing that they loved making it as well and knowing they were happy making it. See, that's the other thing. I think when you think of Brando and he had quite a lot of unhappiness in his life later on, of course, with his kids, a terrible kind of tragic twists and turns that their lives took, which must have been just, you know, heartbreaking for him as well. But you realise he did have one incredible life he must have had. Just imagine what it must have been like to be Brando in the 50s, to be Brando in the 60s, and then in the 70s. You know, what an incredible life he had. I mean, that was a, a huge comeback because he was in his wilderness years uh, by the end of the 60s. And he had that huge comeback in The Godfather where the studio were not that convinced that it was a good idea to hire him. And in fact, he had to agree to do a screen test to get the job. Yeah, he auditioned for it, didn't he? Yeah, he did a, what do they call it, like a self-taping type thing. I mean, obviously, a remarkable film, an amazing film. Uh, Godfather 2, if anything, slightly better. But one, his performance in that is just stunning. And his role yes. within his own family, the, the, the way the kids all play out, and that's sketched in so effortlessly and artfully and the way people come and defer to him and the way he deals with it with a kind of, uh, kind of fairness even though, of course, he's, you know, a, a brutal criminal. Um, amazing. Well, the fact, that, the fact that he's so gentle as well, and then there's that great spontaneous aspect of the stray cat that was on the lot that uh, Coppola just said, hey, just pet this kitty. And so he's got the cat on his lap who's purring. Apparently they had to overdub some of his dialogue because the cat was purring so loudly. But uh, he he's able to just roll with, with the, the spontaneous cat actor. I mean, I think the cat was unfairly overlooked when it came to awards <laughs> because, I mean, the cat, but, you know, th- that whole scene, that's 30% the cat, really. <laughs> What about uh, Last Tango in Paris? That's an interesting film. Last Tango in Paris is somewhat kind of um, problematic today because uh, the young actor in it, Marie Schneider, has come forward and said that she was somewhat coerced and somewhat bullied into various other scenes. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, it falls on us to believe her. So it is a kind of difficult watch in some ways. But having said that, a tremendous performance from Brando, I think. Uh, you know, a, a, a wonderful performance which feels kind of honest and open. Yes, he, he's, he says that he felt very exposed. In fact, when he watched the film, he hated it because basically he was drawing on his own experiences, his bitter relationship with his dad. And I think he felt a little bit betrayed and exposed by the director. Yeah, well, uh, then, I mean, in that case, the director managed to upset everyone. So well done, Bertolucci. Um, <laughs> also got an amazing soundtrack. That's one of those films with just a beautiful, beautiful soundtrack, which I've got behind me on cassette tape as we speak. Um, but it, it's a powerful film and it's got a powerful ending to I don't want to spoil it for people, but there's a, a kind of nice little flourish involving chewing gum that Brando does, which kind of many critics picked up on. Um, and it is, it's a kind of interesting 70s portrait of not so much a wasted life, but an unhappy life, an unhappy man struggling with with existence, which is, a, you know, a, a common theme in that period. But a great performance, a great screen performance by him. So I think if you can put aside some of the problematic aspects of it, you're, you're, it's a very rewarding watch. When he plays Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now, right, we know about the weight gain. He's 22 stone K or something monstrous, isn't he? He turns up and they have to shoot it in a different way and they have to put him in black clothes. But there's also this, this weight with his performance. And, and I'm not sure when I watch it back, because we're told it's so iconic and because it's Brando, whether it is 
truly an incredible performance or whether because of Brando's mystique and all the stuff that goes around the film that we give it this mystique. I just can't decide when he's doing the horror, the horror, whether it's amazing, whether it's OTT. I mean, it's probably both, you know, but the ultimately it's how it feels to you is the truth. I mean, there is no kind of like, you know, there's no objective, completely kind of truthful way of analysing a performance, I think. It's how you feel. I've been to see films with people and I've come out after and said, oh, that I, I didn't enjoy it because that person couldn't act. And someone will say to me, I thought they were the best thing in the film, you know, and they're both legitimate. I, I think it's a masterpiece, which is not a controversial thing to say at all, and I think he is amazing in it. And I think in a way his weight adds so much to the part, weirdly, because here is someone who is he's like this kind of like, you know, he's the gigantic black heart of the film, but he's like this kind of like brooding, squatting, giant toad hidden in this, <laughs> you know, forest. Yeah, where this where this kind of like unjustifiable and completely insane, brutal war is playing out. Just an incredible experience. I mean, I could watch that from time and time again. And of course it is, you know, brilliantly made and a beautifully shot and incredible sound, incredible sound editing and great other performances. Sheen is tremendous in it. But Brando at the very heart, and if you remove Brando, this is what, this is a game I play sometimes when I'm trying to evaluate performance. I think who else could play that role? Who could have been successful in that role? And more often than not, you can think of a few candidates. I can't think of anyone else who could have inhabited that role the way Brando did. As the same way, I don't think anyone could have played the Don in Godfather with the same degree of convincing, powerful, uh, you know, accuracy and immediacy as Brando managed. So, so there's a handful of actors where sometimes I see a role and think they made that role their own. They made that movie their own. No one else could have done that as well and I think Brando does that so many times in his career that's why he is just absolutely one of the all-time greats if not the all-time great. Tom you just reminded me that in fact the very first Brando film I ever saw was Apocalypse Now so I saw it when it came out I was uh, saw it in the middle of the afternoon in a huge uh, 70 millimeter screen um, and I remember thinking my impression of him was that he was terrifying, yeah. that he was just weird. He was the size of a planet. Um, the fact that he was just lit so you could only see his face, but just sense this uh, uh, massiveness, you know, it, it, it was like this, um, th- you know, physical weight and also just kind of psychological weight behind it that you could be crushed by him. Well, you get, don't you get the feeling of this brooding intelligence, this, this mind at the end of its tether, this, this person who's retreated deep into the jungle because he can't deal with the insanity of, of humankind, you know. And I think that's what great screen actors possess, is being able to somehow convey complicated thoughts and emotions without even speaking sometimes. Somehow suggesting and conveying the turmoil within just by being there. And Brando had that. And speaking of turmoil within and turmoil without uh, in terms of fatness and his appetites and uh, the problems in his life, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, he had multiple different families, many different wives. Uh, One of his sons commented that when he came down to the kitchen table in the morning, he didn't know who would be there (laughs) if he would meet a a new family member, uh, you know, a long lost cousin. And uh, he was obviously somebody who uh, was pretty messy I mean, in his personal dealings. This, this is an area where I am more comfortable saying this probably has quite a lot to do with, the, the, with his own upbringing, you know, his own childhood, his own unhappiness as a child. I suspect he was 
probably struggling and trying to make a family unit but not knowing how, not having seen a kind of positive example, not having lived through a good experience of that as a child. And so presumably he was reaching out and trying to create something that he wanted but didn't know how to, how to make, you know, because he'd never seen it and hadn't lived through it. He has this very weird period in the 90s where he's hanging around with Michael Jackson at, at the Neverland Ranch and there's certain images that you, you can't get out of your head. And one of them is... A, a very, very overweight Brando going around Neverland with Jacko in a golf cart with an oxygen tank where the golf clubs would ordinarily be because he's so big and he's having trouble breathing. And that is quite disturbing to me, that idea. I think, yes, I think it's disturbing to all of us. I mean, it's just, a, I mean, everything about that is disturbing. You know, the presence of Jackson in this story. But then Jackson, obviously, let's not start unpacking Jackson. Does he get a mention in the song? I don't think he does, does he? So you won't be doing a... In 1989, he was still considered a good egg. Okay. Uh, and many people still today sort of consider him a good egg. It's a very weird uh, thing, which I can't quite get my head around. Um but he uh, he kind of adopted these older stars that he grew up loving. You know, he adopted Elizabeth Taylor in a weird sort of way as well, didn't he? Of Became course, friendly yeah. with her. So I think he just loved reaching out to the old school Hollywood. Once again, who knows what was going on in that mind? Perhaps it's best that we don't know too much about it. But it's certainly, I suspect that Brando towards the end was, I suspect, quite lost. And it is, I think it is difficult as, as you know, as you kind of like get to the end of your life, especially someone who's had such an amazingly vibrant and important life. How do you deal with those, with the loss of, not only your physical powers, but also the the loss of your relevance, the loss of your connectedness, and, and not just to, to your immediate family, which I suspect he was somewhat disconnected from, but also to the world. And he hit the tabloids again towards the end of his life with the family tragedy, uh, one after the other. One of his sons shot his half-sister's boyfriend while she was pregnant with with their child. And then she committed suicide, I think, five or six years after that. Is that yeah, that? yeah. I mean, that's something no one, you wouldn't wish either of those things on anyone, would you? You know, you wouldn't wish. No. And, and I think to be famous as well, to have to experience such kind of terrible family tragedy, to see, you know, one of your children carrying out such a violent act and the other one killing themselves, amazing. I mean, how anyone survives that kind of thing anyway, no one would get through that without being marked by it. But to also go through it so publicly and it becomes something of a circus, as it did at Sally's House, yeah. it's a, I think, once again, it's it's very, very hard for us to really understand how that must have felt and what impact that must have had. But I think we, we can certainly assume it was it was massive. It was huge and must have shifted his perspective and his feeling about his own life and what he achieved. I, I would have thought you know, as a father myself, you would feel pretty bad about the job you've done. You know, you, I don't think you could look at that happening with your children and not think that you had failed magnificently. Do you think he was happy towards the end, Jonathan? Katie, I've been watching that incredible documentary that was made in, what, 2014? Oh, yeah, 2015. It's called uh, Listen to Me, Marlon. I suspect he had days of happiness and I suspect he had days of great introspection and sadness and looking back and feeling like he'd messed up you know which I think probably is what lies ahead for all of us <laughs> if you're gonna look honestly at your life no one's gonna look at their life and think well you know what I fucking nailed it I did every I did everything right there wasn't a day or a word or a moment that I could have done better you know and that's so I suspect he was I, I hope certainly I hope he had times of happiness still um, but it's an odd, it's an oddly um, 
to look back to sort of spend that much time because he looked back at he was creating a lot of that footage himself, wasn't he? He had kind of archived yeah. his own existence as he was going through it. Oh yeah, he was uh, he was actually sort of narrating his diaries and he was uh, over the years. So he was recording phone calls and he was uh, giving his thoughts, re- you know, reflecting on his past and and also keeping a virtual diary. See, that strikes me, and, and maybe this is a problem, maybe this is my problem, but it strikes me, that strikes me as unhealthy, recording and analysing your life rather than living it. You know, and I, and I can't help but think that he was aware early on of that, that his words carried a degree of weight. And, and t- at times, as we've discussed, he used that very much. He used the platform he had, as we say these days, and he had the, the reach he had. He tried, certainly, to use that for good. Um, but at the same time, I can't help but think that it, it must be, it must drive you slightly mad that if you are always aware that what you're saying is going to be analyzed. Well, I think he's probably analyzing himself because he is so unhappy. There's probably, he's just trying to figure it out. It's a puzzle that he can't solve. Which is, a, which is in itself just an inherent and a great sadness that if his life was such that he couldn't make sense of himself at any time, the short answer would be, was he happy? Then it would probably be no. You know, but here's another side to it. I remember talking to Gilbert and George once, the brilliant UK artist Gilbert and George, and I asked them if they were happy. And they said, well, before we answer that question, is happy really the most interesting state to be? And I thought, well, yeah, that's quite a good point because, you know, sometimes the great art and great creativity and great experiences come out of periods of sadness or conflict or change. And so, you know, whether he was happy or not, I don't know. Is anyone, I mean, I don't want to get too deep here, but are any of us really happy? Didn't expect it to take this turn, Katie, today, I'll be honest. But we've, we've gone there. Um, we are always, Jonathan, in the hands of Billy Joel on this show. Uh, that is where the grand adventure that Katie and I have embarked on. That's the way it operates. And sometimes we do a lyric of his number one smash hit and we think, I'm not sure, Billy, if you are justified in including <laughs> this one. But Brando feels like one if he hadn't. Katie and I would be banging his door down again. Why the hell didn't you include Brando? He had to put Brando in. But you're much more familiar with the uh, the, the rise and fall and the lines in this song than, well, than anyone else on the planet now, apart from Billy Joel, perhaps. So he puts Brando in and James Dean's in there, isn't he? Yes. Is Montgomery Clift in there? No. No, I don't think he is. No. See, that's an omission. I think that's a bad omission. Well, we, it, don't get me started on that, Jonathan, because there's no artists in there. So there's no Andy Warhol. There's no Gilbert and George. Wow, no Frida Kahlo? No Frida Kahlo. No Dali? Salvador no. Dali? No Doesn't Salvador Dali. Oh, that, yeah. that rhymes with everything. I mean, Salvador I know. <laughs> yeah, well, you get Salvador Dali and you get Bob Marley in as well, don't you, a couple of beats later. And if you're looking at Brando and his entire career and the legacy that he left, what would you say to sum it up? I'd say that he had an impact on on cinema and thereby, and in a way because cinema is the dominant art form of the last century and will perhaps be of this century, on culture, uh, that was kind of second to none. I mean, really second to none. I think he is as important a figure as any other person in any other field. In art, in politics, in music, you know, it was a kind of a truth on screen, an entertaining truth, uh, a presence which made us sometimes a little bit frightened, sometimes aroused, attracted, amused, uh, delighted, enervated. He had all those qualities. He just had a kind of a joyful exuberance in some of the movies and a kind of brooding malevolence in others, which has been, I think, not been equaled by any other actor or any other performer. You know, he is, he, he, he was, I think, one of the dominant figures of the last hundred years. You said it all, Jonathan. 
I said too much. <laughs> and yet, and yet, not nearly enough. <laughs> well, the, tr- the trouble is, I just keep talking bullshit for hours. But I do love Brand. Don't you love Brando? I could just look at Brando's face. I could look at Brando's face. Yes. For, you know, if there was a movie, it was just Brando's face and him smiling and laughing and being thoughtful. I'd put it on in the background all day. I'd be perfectly happy. If we were to try and narrow the whole Brando oeuvre to a single film, which I know is impossible, Jonathan, if we had to pick out one for listeners who maybe haven't seen any Brando films, which one should we go for? Oh, man, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. I mean, you'd probably have to steer them to one of the, what's seen as one of the great performances, but also I think you'd want to one in which his character was on screen for a lot. So therefore, I would discount Apocalypse Now, and that's amazing. And I would actually discount Godfather. I would take that out of the mix because that's kind of very late period Brando, but of course, he's only part of the story. He's only on the screen for probably, I would have thought about, uh, you know, 15% of the movie. But I think you would probably steer them towards On the Waterfront. A great script, a film which feels beautiful and truthful, but is also incredibly powerful and very much stands the test of time. Oh, Jonathan Ross, thank you so much for your Marlon Brando fanaticism. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. I will call you. I'll now be calling both of you on a regular basis to talk about Brando because I feel I feel we've only just scratched the surface. Hey, that was a fun one, Katie. I'm amped. I'm psyched. Who have we got next week? Next week, we have The King and I. Oh, your Brenner, Deborah Kerr. Yes. Beautiful. Well, if you have enjoyed this and you fancy another podcast to listen to, we would recommend Death of a Film Star. Deep, immersive stories about the stars that we loved but who left us too early. Episodes about Marilyn Monroe, about Chadwick Boseman, about Heath Ledger and more. Just search for Death of a Film Star in all the usual podcast places. And listeners, you can track us down on social media at Spread That Fire. Please leave us a review. Subscribe if you're so inclined. And if you want to share your innermost thoughts, please email us at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. 
Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.